Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. In 1988, rather than comply with an ecclesiastical summons issued by then Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, now Pope Benedict XVI, to move to Chicago and give up his work on creation spirituality in Oakland, California, Matthew Fox, a Dominican priest, left the Dominican order, remained in Oakland, and established the University of Creation Spirituality. Matthew Fox, our guest on this edition of Radio Curious, is the author of 28 books, most recently, The Hidden Spirituality of Men, 10 Metaphors to Awaken the Sacred Masculine. Matthew Fox first visited Radio Curious in 1999 when his book, Sins of the Spirit, Blessing of the Flesh, Lessons for Transforming Evil in Soul and Society was published. Not long ago, we came across his most recent book, The Hidden Spirituality of Men, and the latent curiosity of Radio Curious about spirituality was awakened. Matthew Fox and I visited again by phone from his home in Oakland, California on January 11th, 2011. Our conversation, which explores male and female spirituality, began with Matthew Fox distinguishing spirituality, faith, religion, and dogma. Matthew Fox, welcome to Radio Curious. Thank you. Good to be back. So looking at your book, The Hidden Spirituality of Men, Ten Metaphors to Awaken the Sacred Masculine, um, can we begin with uh, a characterization of uh, spirituality and how it compares to faith uh, versus religion versus dogma? Well, spiritualize how we live our lives in depth and... Um, Obviously, um, faith, beliefs, and and uh, doctrines can have an influence on that. But um, spirituality is really the, the essence of religion. It's the essence of what faith is supposed to bring into the world. And so um, it is about living our lives with courage and with consciousness and conscience. And um, it's about joys we undergo and the grief we undergo, and uh, it's about our creativity, what we bring into the world, what we leave behind, and uh, the battles that we struggle. When you say it's what it's supposed to be about, supposed to from the perspective of whom? Well, again, you can look at the various spiritual traditions of the world, as I've certainly done in my in my writings and my other books, and... Um, you do find consensus around a lot of topics, such as compassion and uh, justice and so forth. The Buddha taught that, Lao Tzu taught that, Isaiah taught that, Muhammad taught that, and Jesus taught that. So um, spirituality is living out of compassion instead of just talking about it or meditating on it, thinking about it. Um, it's the living of it. And it's the pursuit of justice, whether in the area of ecology or gender justice or social justice or economic justice. And it's about the um, effort we put into that work. So in your studies and in your development of, of your personal thoughts on spirituality, uh, has that changed over the years? 
You've been doing this work now for over 30 years, I believe. Uh, yes, I have. Well, obviously it's evolved, and I, I try to continue to learn along the way. But I came of age in the time of the Civil Rights Movement and the Vietnam War issues. Of course, following that, there was the Ecological Movement and the Gay Liberation Movement and, of course, Women's Liberation all along. And so um, I've tried to kind of keep abreast of these struggles and interpret, put into language, translate, if you will, basic spiritual principles of mysticism and of prophetic work, try to translate this into everyday language, and work. For example, now I'm working with inner-city youth, trying to reinvent education from the inner city out in a program that I call Yell Awe. And um, it's a, an application of my activism in education over the years because I started a program 30 years ago for adults, a master's program that also evolved into a doctoral program that was about reinventing education to allow us to teach spirituality within academia. And I think that's, that's a real issue because I think a lot of academia is, uh, is without moral or spiritual compass at this time. A good example is this latest fiasco at um, University of California, Berkeley, where uh, the administrators are pushing, some of them, for um, $300,000 a year retirement benefits, while students have had a 32% increase in their tuition in the last two years. So um, issues of justice and spirituality are are always um, on the radar, always necessary in whatever work we're doing, and this is why these themes keep recurring. Well, Matthew, in the hidden spirituality of men, you talk about the sacred masculine, and as an entryway in getting into what the sacred masculine is, perhaps we could begin by comparing it or differentiating it from the sacred feminine. I've been very involved for decades with the issue of the return of the goddess and the divine feminine. And in fact, when the Pope silenced me 20 years ago or so, that was his objection to my work, uh, was that I was, he called me, said I'm a feminist theologian, and I guess he considers that a heresy, and called God mother as well as father, and he didn't like that. But So the divine feminine has been coming back, thanks to the women's movement, and um, the goddess really is back, and, and in a strong way, although there's still a lot of work to do. But it doesn't do us that much good culturally if the goddess is back, and we're still um, taking in toxic images of the divine masculine. Uh, we have to detox that. We have to clean up the sacred masculine so that the divine feminine has a proper consort, if you will. You know, the men's movement uh, of 20 years ago uh, took a shot at that, and they, they certainly did some good work. But I think that, that movement has, in many respects, kind of... Um, lost some of its steam at this time, and I think we need a, a recharge. And um, here, for example, is a, a quote from Joseph Jostrab, who wrote a real good book called Sacred Manhood, Sacred Earth, A Vision Quest into the Wilderness of a Man's Heart. And this fellow committed himself to taking men on vision quests, and he wrote a journal, and they wrote journals about their experiences, but this is what he concluded. He said, many of us were looking to the Great Mother for salvation. 
but nobody I knew was seeking right relationship with the great father. We all seem to be reacting against the terrible father, the one who sires reason, cut off from love, truth hardened into static form, law void of compassion. But there was no mention of any positive masculine alternative. So that really was the, the thrust of my book, is to come up with positive masculine alternatives. What are the images of the sacred masculine that are deep and real and, and even ancient? And that's what I do in this book. I go into ten archetypes of the sacred masculine that go back a previous to any of our religious traditions, really, and yet permeate them or, and that we can uh, bring to life today. And... Um, that's uh, really the thrust of my book, to try to recover the sacred masculine so that the divine feminine has a proper um, partner. And the book ends with two chapters on the sacred marriage of the divine feminine and the sacred masculine. That's really what we seek, is that balance of yin-yang that uh, has been out of kilter, I think, for some time. Before we get into a discussion of the sacred marriage, let's talk about the... Um ubiquitous uh, sexuality of our species and virtually all species that reproduce on our earth. And you say, and and I'm quoting, uh, I believe beyond the heterosexual, homosexual, or bisexual that we are pansexual. Ultimately, embracing the archetype of the lover means recovering our pansexuality, which nurtures and feeds all our relationships, including our humanly sexual ones. Tell us about pansexuality, which I am interpreting, and correct me if you have a different focus, that uh, that crosses over between homosexuality and heterosexuality, and perhaps into other areas. Well, I think that um, we have a, a profound relationship that involves all of our chakras, including our sexual chakras, with um, all the vibrations of life, from music to walking on, on, the, on the earth. And um, I know I had an experience when I was in my 20s and living in southern France and, uh, in the sheep country there uh, in the foothills of the Pyrenees Mountains, and I was walking on the, these foothills of the mountains. And I had this experience of pansexuality, that it was a sexual experience to walk on the earth and to realize our connection with the earth and the stars. Again, that that these deep experiences, these mystical experiences, affect all our chakras, including the lower chakras, where we connect to the earth and also where, um, where sexuality dwells. Are you comparing or relating a new experience that uh, of your experience in the Pyrenees uh, being a sexual experience, something different than an orgasm experience? No, it's not orgasmic. It's just about a, a complete union, a real profound union. And um, that's really what sexuality is about. An orgasm is, is an aspect of it, it's an expression of it, but it's not the exclusive expression of it. But it's also a um, required uh, expression to uh, progenerate our species. Well, it's <laughs> required from time to time, but generating a species is about much more than just producing babies. It's about raising babies and, um, and ushering them into adolescence and into adulthood and so forth in, in a wise and disciplined fashion. So um, 
Uh, That's the point. Sexuality is not just about genital activity. It's about multiple relationships. And I think that our culture zeroes in too much, uh, excessively really, on just the orgasm, if you want to call it that, and uh, forgetting that we're, we're sexual at many levels of our beings. When you talk about a wise and disciplined fashion, that causes me to wonder about the wisdom that we believe we have now in 2011 versus wisdom um, uh, that would say sexuality is sinful, it's bad, and should be repressed, that is carried on currently in some cultures, and in the past it was perhaps carried on even more. Can you talk about that difference? Well, to me, that's not wisdom to denigrate the the beauty and the joy and the wonder and the ecstasy of sexuality. That's just moralizing. So that's not wisdom. But wisdom is putting things into the context of the whole. Just as I say, a Buddhist monk who chants but also takes a vow of celibacy is expressing his sexuality very profoundly in those deep and very masculine chant. So there are many ways to express one's sexuality, and that's part of wisdom, to know that there are many ways. Well, are you then uh, saying that the Catholic Church's uh, presentation of guilt related to sexuality was or is a misguided morality? Yes, I've been saying that for 40 years, yes. Not just the Catholic Church, but other other traditions too, often uh, moralize about sex instead of putting it into its mystical context, which in fact the Song of Songs does in the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, the book on the Song of Songs is about sexual love as a theophany, as an experience of the divine, and that is the Jewish teaching, that is to celebrate the Sabbath by um, reading the Song of Songs and by making love. And they go together very nicely. And, of course, other traditions, Hinduism, for example, also celebrates the mystical side of sexuality in its temples, where it has um, male and female organs represented to represent the divine connection. And uh, other traditions have this as well, including Islam. In this edition of Radio Curious, we're visiting with Matthew Fox, whose new book is The Hidden Spirituality of Men, Ten Metaphors to Awaken the Sacred Masculine. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Matthew, you talk about the importance of overcoming homophobia, which in a way fits into what you were just saying about celebrating our sexuality. Can you elaborate on that for us, please? Well, one of the points I make in in this book on men is that um, homosexuals have a lot to teach uh, heterosexuals and vice versa. But um, when you deal with with men, two issues that always come up are aggression. How do we deal with aggression? And shame. And shame is, of course, I think goes back to our hunter-gatherer time when we lived in small clans and tribes. And we were banished from the tribe if you were really harming the community. There were no prisons or jails, but you were just uh, let go. And, of course, it was really like death because you couldn't survive in the wilderness and all without without the help of others. So um, it was a serious thing. And I think that's what shame is, it's being banished, feeling banished. 
And uh, men have these feelings deep in us. Now, I think that homosexuals deal with shame much earlier than heterosexuals do. Even as boys, homosexuals feel they're different, and they often have had to hide their differences. And so the homosexual then has something to teach the heterosexual about shame. Now, some homosexuals get through this through creativity and through strengthening their inner life. Now, some homosexuals flunk the test, and they fall into addiction at an early age, whether alcohol or drugs or, or self-hatred. And it leads, of course, to high rates of suicide and addiction. So there's no guarantee that the homosexual makes it through that difficult shame period. But if they do, they come out stronger people and more creative people. And so they have something to teach the heterosexual. When you say men uh, have these feelings of shame deep within us, my reaction is that that can be a very personal kind of situation. And I'm wondering if you could uh, talk about the, the scope or breadth of what those deep feelings of shame might be in, in different areas of our personhood. Well, I think it comes out. In our competition, um, it feeds competition sometimes. The whole idea that you have to be number one um, uh, it kind of feeds a mentality, whether it's in, in uh, sport or in business or in Wall Street or, or what have you. That is a defense mechanism, if you will, that we put up to run from shame. And then, of course, if we fail to be number one or close to it, then we beat up on ourselves, or what's worse, maybe uh, beating up on others near us, whether it's kicking the dog or, or the kids or our spouse or lover. So um, shame comes out, I think, in, in, uh, in various ways. And I address this in positive fashion in the book because, for example, I deal with Father Sky. What is our relationship to the, to the universe? And I think that our culture has lost that relationship to Father Sky, and the result is that many men do not feel we belong in the universe itself. We're busy just trying to belong in our community, in our, our work. Another place we don't feel we belong is, is to nature itself, and that's where the Green Man Architect comes in. So I think I'm offering medicine throughout this book about learning to belong, learning to belong with nature again, learning to belong with the universe again, and that's how you feel shame. When you say our culture, uh, in our culture we don't belong in, in your father-sky comparison, how wide, worldwide, uh, do you go when you use the term our culture? Well, I'm talking uh, Western, um, so European and American culture in particular. Uh, for example, there is an Australian theologian lecturing in Africa a few years ago, and he was being translated as he spoke. He would speak a sentence or two, and then they'd translate him into Swahili. And at the end of his lecture, he said, the number one spiritual problem in Sydney today is loneliness. And the translator said, will you repeat that, which he did. And he huddled with other Africans, and he came to the microphone and said, I'm sorry, sir, in our language, there is no word for loneliness. Now, that's what I mean. <laughs> we Westerners, we know what loneliness is. We know what cosmic loneliness is. How is it that Africans do not have the word in their language? It's because they're still connected to the earth and to the sky. They feel a, a connection there. And not just them, but other indigenous peoples. Indeed, when I was in Australia a few years ago, an Aboriginal told me, he said, 
when we teach our children about the sky, we tell them that the stars are campfires of our ancestors. And when you look at the sky, you're looking at our ancestors, their campfires, they're looking down on the earth to see what's cooking here on earth. So notice that ancient teaching, that they're teaching their kids that they're related to the sky. So they are not set up for shame because they belong. They belong to the sky. They belong to the stars. And, uh, and they're not set up for loneliness. I want to go back to competition for a minute, which in a way um, foments loneliness among those who don't come out number one, and bring in uh, the testosterone uh, that we men have a greater abundance of than women do. And your thoughts on how that affects the competition aspect of what we're discussing. Well, obviously competition has a positive side to it. You know, it brings out the best in you, and it, it makes you train better and, and so forth. So it, it has a positive side, and it's fun to watch if we, if we convert it into sport and play. But it has this shadow side, too. If it becomes an end in itself, if you will, if being number one is how you define your very identity, you see. And then, of course, it can take on, as you say, the testosterone and the reptilian brain. It can. It is, of course... Uh, uh, very powerful in in war and uh, war imagery and the call to war and the call to spend trillions of dollars on defense and so forth, often when it's not defense at all, but offense. So it has a shadow side. It can run away with us. And I think especially the reptilian brain is very important to think about today. It's what science is telling us. We all have three brains. Reptilian brain, which is 240 million years old. A mammal brain, which is a half as old, about 120 years, million years old, and then the recent uh, in, in, intelligent creative brain. And the reptilian brain, which is, is like that of a crocodile, is, is win-lose, you see. That's where competition can go off the deep end. It's win-lose with a crocodile. There's not a lot of um, compromise there. And if, if we run on this reptilian brain, and I think we're a lot in our culture teaches us to run on that, and that is competition with a capital C, then uh, we're in trouble because the mammal brain, which is more recent, the mammal brain is about kinship. It's about family. It's about community. And, and um, this is why the word for compassion comes with the word for, for womb. So the mammals are the womb people. They bring compassion to the earth. And many of us are not taught our capacities for compassion. We're only taught our capacities for testosterone-driven a reptilian brain, and there's a lot of that going on, the devouring of the rainforest and the soil and the air and, the, and so forth. This is reptilian energy, and it has to be tamed. It has to yield to the compassionate um, brain, and that in turn needs to be steered by our intellectual uh, creative brains. Well, Matthew Fox, author of The Hidden Spirituality of Men, Ten Metaphors to Awaken the Sacred Masculine, I thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious, and I'd like to ask a couple of questions. Uh And the first one is, in your experience, was there an aha or a eureka moment that gave you insight into uh, an idea or a way of living that you carry with you? Well, I've had a number of them. One was when I was a child, I was 12 years old and had polio. And um, they couldn't tell me if I would walk again. But about, I don't know, eight months later, I did get my legs back. And I remember saying that I'd never take my legs for granted again. 
So there was, that was a Eureka experience because it was about, what should I say, I think recognizing the extraordinary in the ordinary. Namely, that having legs at work is really a great thing. And um, I, I also said to myself that I'm not going to, I don't want to waste my life now that I got my life back because back at, at that time, people were dying of polio. So that was certainly a Eureka moment. I remember in high school reading um, War and Peace by Tolstoy. I told a friend of blew my soul wide open, and that was a eureka moment. And I've had a lot of them, you know, with literature and music, and I've had more than my share. <laughs> I've tried to share them. A lucky but man. I am a lucky man. You're and right. what would you like to do with the rest of your one special life? <laughs> well, I, I enjoy writing and, and speaking and sharing ideas and, and learning, and uh I enjoy reading, too, and uh, dialoguing with others, especially those different from myself. And um, I've been in quite a lot of work lately with Buddhists and trying to bring together the wisdom of Buddhism and the wisdom of our our uh, Western traditions is important to me. I have a book coming out in February on Christian mystics, and I think so many Westerners are out of touch with our own mystical tradition. We think we have to go east to find mysticism, but it, we also have a tradition. And it's not a competition, but I think it's easier, frankly, for Westerners, most Westerners, to go west rather than east. And uh, we've made it so hard because, frankly, the church is out of touch with their mystical tradition. And in many regards, the synagogue is too. So I think we all have to wake up to what's deepest in our religious traditions, and we have to simplify our traditions clean them up uh, for the this 21st century and make them much simpler, travel might much lighter. And finally, Matthew Fox, can you suggest a book or recommend a book to our listeners? The um, A book I, I've been reading lately that I, I've enjoyed a lot is um, a book on Walt Whitman called Walt Whitman's Spiritual Democracy by Stephen Herman. Whitman was so ahead of his time. I mean, he was not only writing about gay marriage 150 years ago, but he was writing about what I call deep ecumenism, the sharing of the wisdom of all the world traditions. So he calls it spiritual democracy. And um, he really has a lot to say in this for our 21st century. He was so ahead of his time. And, of course, he celebrated the body, and he celebrated our relationship to nature and the earth. And from that point of view, he was very much in this creation spiritual tradition that I've been trying to um, stir up and that I think is really needed in this time of ecological struggle and collapse. So he's one of our, our great visionaries, and I, I really recommend this book. I think it goes very deep into Whitman and, and also that whole movement that included Melville and Emily Dickinson in the 19th century in America, which was a movement of recovering the sacred in a deeper place than just our church institutions. Well, Matthew Fox, thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. Thank you, Barry, and thank you for having your program all these years. Matthew Fox is the author of 28 books, the most recent being The Hidden Spirituality of Men, Ten Metaphors to Awaken the Sacred Masculine. The book that Matthew Fox recommends is Walt Whitman, Shamanism, Spiritual Democracy, and the World Soul by Stephen B. Herman. All editions of Radio Curious are free for anyone, anywhere to listen, 
download, and enjoy. There are about 400 archive editions on our website, www.radiocurious.org. You may subscribe to our podcast at our website. Our email is curious at radiocurious.org. Snail mail is Post Office Box 7, Ukiah, U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482. And the phone is 707-462-6541. You've been listening to Radio Curious. Christina Anastad is the associate producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.